and also keep your eye focused on the prize. Like you will get there in one way or another. If you're determined to have kids, you'll get to have kids somehow. It just may look different. Welcome to the Mama I Hear You podcast, stories for moms by moms. I'm so happy you're here. I'm your host, Jamie Evans, and I have two boys, four and seven. This is a place where we can all connect and support each other by sharing our stories about all the things that come with motherhood in the early years. From the times that feel incredibly hard to the times that make you laugh out loud, no topic is off limits. So warm up your coffee again, and let's get started. Today's story is about Jennifer, who after years of fertility treatment, a hysterectomy, and a failed adoption, was finally able to fulfill her dream of becoming a mama when her sister-in-law stepped in and changed her entire path to parenthood. At 19, Jennifer gets married to her high school sweetheart, Jason, and they start trying to have a family right away. We got married and we're like, okay, we're going to start a family. I'm the youngest of my family and I was always the one who just gravitated towards babies. And I knew in my life, all I wanted to do was be a mom. They are super excited to start their family. And just a couple weeks after they get married, she starts to bleed a little bit. And at first she just kind of thinks, ah, that's weird. Um... But she keeps bleeding and it, and it goes on for almost a month and she just can't ignore it anymore. And so she finally goes into her doctor. I had a uterine hemorrhage. He's like, oh, we have to get you into surgery right away. And he told me at that point, if you ever want to have children, you have to start seeing a fertility specialist right away. He says, you know, you're not going to be able to get pregnant with your uterus in, you know, in this condition and I left with like PCOS and endometriosis, endometriitis. Um, I had a whole laundry list of diagnoses. (laughs) It was absolutely crushing. I just felt so incredibly betrayed by my body and so angry and so frustrated. And women are kind of raised to know that your body is meant to bear children. I'm like, it can't do the one thing it's supposed to be able to do. So they decide, okay, we're going to start seeing a fertility specialist. So they go to Dr. Stolk out of Portland, Oregon, and he puts her on Clomid, a fertility drug, super, super high doses, higher than she could ever find was recommended because she didn't ovulate and her egg reserve was really low and they, they weren't sure why. The goal with Clomid is to alter a woman's hormones in an effort to get her ovary to produce an egg follicle. The first night she's on Clomid, she cries herself to sleep, but not for the reason that you would think. We can blame this one on their new kittens. Her husband... He was super supportive, but he didn't really... The first time I took the Clomid, coincidentally, we had a batch of kittens at home and they were starting to explore the whole house. And so he was going to go to bed to get up for work the next day, and he shut the bedroom door. And in my new fertility drug mind, I thought he didn't want me to come to bed with him. And so I cried myself to sleep in the guest bedroom. And he got up at like 2 o'clock in the morning. He's like, why why are you in here? 
and I just broke down. The next morning, I'm like, wow, this this medication is going to make me crazy. <laughs> so he he was <laughs> he was very sensitive to the fact on the first couple of days that I took the Clomid that I might have some mood swings going on. So I think he treaded lightly for the better part of six years. <laughs> <laughs> With fertility treatment, things can get pretty regimented. In Jennifer's case, the regiment dictated not just when they needed to have sex, but sometimes where. We were newlyweds and it kind of took the fun out of being newlyweds because everything had to be so scheduled. And I was literally taking medication to start my period. Then I'd have to take medication to stop my period. Um, I had to manage every single aspect of the process. So I have three, I'd have at least um, two appointments a month, if not three or four, depending on what was going on with my cycle that month. It was exhausting, honestly, but we had such a goal set. Every month I would do all of my Clomid and then go into the office on a certain day of my cycle, have an HCG injection that would hopefully trigger an egg to release. And I would say probably 90% of the time that didn't work. The toughest part was we lived on the Oregon coast. We lived in Tillamook. That's where I'm from. And our fertility specialist was in Portland. So for a couple of the procedures, they're like, you need to have intercourse like a half hour before your appointment and then come right in. I'm like, no, we have a, a two-hour drive. <laughs> so I'm like, how are we supposed to do this? How did you solve the problem of them telling you to have sex when you had a two-hour commute? Um, yeah, it was tough. You, we had to like find a place to pull off along Highway 6 <laughs> and then <laughs> pray nobody sees us and then pray there was not a lot of traffic to get us to Portland within that window. My doctor, Dr. Sulk, he was very strict with, you know, if you want to achieve pregnancy, this is exactly what we need to do. And I'm like, okay, I am, I am type A. I'm a rule follower. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. Jennifer and her husband, Jason, wanted a baby so badly. They kept up this regimented routine for about six years. They actually moved to Portland to be closer to their fertility doctor because the two-hour commute multiple times a month was just getting to be too much. During this time, Jennifer had multiple surgeries with Dr. Stolk, including DNCs, two exploratory laparotomies, and at this point, zero positive pregnancy tests. Their fertility journey was taking an emotional toll. Her husband... I think he tried really hard not to make me feel like it was my fault that this was happening. Because I did carry a lot of guilt for it, I think, because he wanted a family and I couldn't give him what he wanted. It is so mentally exhausting and there's so many big feelings that go behind it. I felt totally betrayed by my body. I hated my body. I really developed a really, really bad self-image that took years to recover from. In addition to the emotional toll it was taking, going through this fertility process for years was also super hard on Jennifer's body. And one month, it reached a tipping point. I was having horrible pelvic pain. Honestly, I feel like my like pelvic area is going to explode. Like, I don't know what this feeling is. I've never had it before, but I had so much pressure. I'm like, I'm kind of afraid to even walk because it hurts so bad. Did an ultrasound and like, yeah, there's a super large cyst. And that's when my doctor decided we have to probably take my right ovary out. We need to get you into surgery. They got surgery scheduled for like two days later. And uh, 
when I did surgery, my doctor said, oh, you had a grapefruit-sized cyst inside of your right ovary. And it was so large, you had ovarian torsion where it had twisted upon itself. And so he's like, yeah, if we would have let this go another day or two, your ovary would have probably exploded. (laughs) So he's like, you were right. And just that scariness of, you know, they didn't know, is it all the fertility drugs that I'm taking that's causing these huge, massive cysts to develop or what it was? I'm like, I'm really starting to play with my overall health and I don't want to, you know, bleed out, have a hemorrhage. I don't want to die from trying to get pregnant. Two months after removing her right ovary, her left ovary started growing a suspicious cyst. So my doctor said either, you know, we got to keep watching it twice a month with ultrasound, monitoring your levels, or you can have a hysterectomy. And I was so tired of the whole thing. I just opted for the hysterectomy. Even though Jennifer could no longer carry babies, she and her husband were still determined to have a family. Pretty quickly after her hysterectomy, they started exploring other options to have kids. I think in my, my heart, I kind of felt like, okay, well, we can have children still, you know, they aren't, won't genetically be ours. But we thought for a long time, well, we can, um, we can adopt. And we looked into a bunch of different options for adopting. They looked at foster-to-adopt programs where you foster kids with the plan to adopt. Just three months after her hysterectomy, they got a foster placement of two siblings. Yeah, so our foster kiddos, we got them when they were two and three. Um, Both of their parents were incarcerated and grandma was incarcerated. They had no other family that they knew of. Um, The parents that we were dealing with were both addicts and um, incarcerated off and on. One of the hardest parts for Jennifer was when the parents were out of prison and Jennifer would take the kids to the visitation with their parents. I fully support, like, kiddos need to have visitation with their parents, but the kiddos got to know twice a week. We went down to the DHS office in downtown Vancouver and they got their visitation. And I would say at least 75% of the time the parents wouldn't show up. And that was the hardest part is um, knowing that we still bring them down there twice a week to get their hearts broken most of the time. Prior to Jennifer and Jason legally finalizing the adoption, the biological parents had a lot of say in how the children were raised. They still got to to set the rules for the children for the most part. Um, Like with the boy, they would not allow us to cut his hair. They wouldn't let us even trim the daughter's bangs. They were very adamant. We just let it keep growing. They had all these stipulations in place. So it was really hard. Like, I don't feel like we were fully able to parent them 100% because we still had all these stipulations we had to work with. But after 10 months of raising these little people, while following all of the stipulations and comforting the kids when their parents no-showed at the visits, the kids were finally going to be theirs. We were set up to do the adoption. We thought for sure that these were going to be our kids because the way everything had played out at the last moment, just the very last minute, the family from out of state showed up just in the nick of time. They went to live with their aunt and uncle in Northern Washington. And it was, it was great overall for the kiddos that we had that they got to stay with their family. Um, But that was kind of another big letdown that we had along the way that kind of stopped us from wanting to do foster to adopt. 
And I got updates a couple months after they left. And the first thing they did was cut the boy's hair. (laughs) So at this point, things are at a real standstill. They've tried to get pregnant with fertility drugs. They raised these two toddlers for almost a year and then had to say goodbye to them. They don't want to try foster to adopt again because they're scared that might happen again. And they don't have enough money to adopt through an agency. But they held on to their dream of having a family. And one day, a couple of years later, my husband and I sold a house and we had some profits. So we're like, okay, we are going to adopt. We finally had the money. We were going to adopt a baby. Okay, let's find an, like, you know, like an adoption agency here locally. And we were so excited. We're like, let's go out to dinner with Deanna and let her know our plan because we're finally going to try to have our family. Like we were set to go, <laughs> carved out some money for it. We were going for it. So Jennifer and Jason are excited because now they've come up with a new plan. They are ready to go. They want to share the news. So Jason calls up his sister, Deanna, and her husband, and they decide to take them to dinner and let them know about their plans to adopt. And while they're sharing the news, Deanna says something that changes the course of the entire conversation 180 degrees. We went to Applebee's, actually. (laughs) Went to Applebee's (laughs) for dinner with my sister-in-law and her husband and told them our plan. And she's like, well, wait a minute. If you want to look into surrogacy, I'm still more than happy to carry babies for you. And I was like, hmm, okay. So Jason's sister, Deanna, had actually made a comment about her carrying Jason's and Jennifer's baby. But it was years ago, right after Jennifer's hysterectomy. And she had completely forgotten about it until Deanna brought it up again at Applebee's that night. I had completely forgotten that conversation. I, I didn't remember it all. And my husband's like, oh, yeah, I think I remember her saying something. Um, but I literally, like, I was like a day out of surgery, still in the hospital. And I remember being in the recovery room in the hospital and my husband's sister was there and said, if you want me to carry babies for you, I will. And it was just so fresh and so raw having the surgery. I was like, I don't even want to think about children right now. I was so frustrated. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we hadn't even thought of that because she... Um, her kids, when she did the our pregnancy with my son, her kids were 16 and 18. So she had like older teenage kids. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, well, there's no way that she would want to do that. It's been so many years since she's been pregnant. Um, but yeah, right. she was all for it. So And then everything changed that night. And she said like, hey, I'm still offering this. And what was your initial yeah. reaction or response to We her? were shocked. because. Um, Surrogacy is something we had thought about, but it is so expensive. And, um, you know, to go through an agency, you're looking at $40,000, $60,000. And we did not have that type of money sitting around. And so we just felt like it was so far out of reach. We hadn't even really considered it. Um, But when she offered, she's like, well, I'm not going to charge you anything, of course. We're all kind of... Uh, just like mind blown over the whole concept of it. 
And so we said, well, let's, let's take the night. Let's regroup tomorrow. Let's talk because she's, you know, married and we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page that this is going to work. Everybody, you know, had to get their feelings figured out. And then how long after that did you come to a decision? Um, I think it was like the next day she brought it up. And yeah, she was um, definitely interested in seeing the fertility specialist, making sure that she was a good candidate to be a surrogate. And I remember uh, my husband, Jason, and I both went and my sister-in-law and her husband all went to the consultation appointment. And afterwards, we all just felt like this is going to work. This is actually going to work. They went back to Dr. Stolk, all of them, and they, they decided to just move forward and start the process right away. So Dr. Stolk doesn't carry frozen donor eggs, but he has a program where you can choose an egg donor and then that donor comes in and goes through an IVF cycle um, and the egg retrieval process. IVF involves lots and lots and lots of shots before the egg retrieval. And unfortunately, the first egg donor they chose, well, she wasn't so great with shots. Yeah, actually, the egg donor was kind of a challenge um, because he literally had a pamphlet of women that we could choose from. We didn't get to see what they looked like, but it had all their traits. And we picked it egg donor that was closest to my traits, my hair color, eye color, all that. And she was so excited. She was so on board. And the first day she came into the clinic, they gave her a shot and she passed out. And then the egg donor revealed that she is terrified of needles. And so Dr. Stolk is like, this this isn't going to work. You have to give yourself shots every single day. We have to give you shots for the retrieval. And so at the last minute, she bailed, which was fine. I mean, I didn't want her to go through anything that was too uncomfortable for her. But there was only two women left available for that cycle, or we would have to bump it out another month. So um, Dr. Stolk just picked our egg donor for us over the phone. (laughs) So So the second egg donor did not faint at the sight of needles, thankfully. Um, but there was another issue that they had to work through. Most egg donors give between like 15 to 30, 40 eggs. And I think she started with 12. And by the time they did the retrieval, they only had eight viable eggs. And so Dr. Stoke was saying, we probably should scrap this whole cycle, pick a new donor and try again next month. And I was like, Ugh. first of all, we already paid like $2,500 <laughs> to do that. And we'd have to do it again. And I was like, can we just try it? Can we just push forward and try and see what happens? And he's like, "Uh, I guess if you want to keep going, we'll keep going. So we did. And that, I think that week was the most stressful week of my entire life. Because every day you have embryos that don't survive. And they have to be to a certain stage before they're viable for transfer. And thankfully, I mean, it was literally by the grace of God, we had five embryos that made it to the full stage. So he picked out the two best ones and transferred those the first round, and then we froze the other three. So they transferred two embryos to Deanna, and about four weeks after the transfer, Jennifer gets a text. Deanna, like, texts me that she was having some bleeding, just going to call the doctor and make sure everything's okay. And then we went in for an ultrasound and we had our one good, strong sac developed 
um, had a heartbeat. And then the other one stopped developing a couple of days before they'd figured. Was that scary for you? It was scary. Yeah. So we were hoping like, let's just have twins and be done with the whole thing. You know, get two babies at once. <laughs> Looking back now, thank God we didn't have twins. <laughs> but it was, it was a very scary experience because it wasn't my body. I mean, of course, I have all the trust in the world for my sister-in-law. She's the most amazing woman. But um, not having control over that situation was really hard. Jennifer and her husband went to every single appointment. I mean, they were in it. They actually drove Deanna to all of her appointments. It was a little bit tough for Jennifer not to be in control, like 100% control of the pregnancy, right? Because someone else is carrying her baby. So we were able to go to every ultrasound, every test, everything with her. It's so kind of hard to describe because there's no one else in the world I would rather have do that for me than her. But at the same time, without it being my body, like you have to kind of blindly put trust in someone to take care. I mean, she's taking care of your baby, you know? And it's something we had wanted for so long that... It was a struggle to kind of give her her space and we totally trusted her judgment. Um, And she was great. She'd already been through pregnancy twice before. So we felt like she knows what she's doing. We can trust her to take care of, you know, everything. Everything was just a completely open line of communication. Any questions or concerns from either way, like we're just going to ask whatever we want. One of the things Jennifer talked to Deanna about was her concern over whether the baby would bond with her since she wasn't carrying it. I expressed to her many times, like, what if this baby doesn't feel like I'm mama? Like, what if this child doesn't bond with me? And then, you know, it's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Do we think they would feel like a really strong bond to her over me? Some of Jennifer's family and friends didn't really help in that area or ease her fears that she had about bonding with her child. Was, um, was your family supportive? Like when you said, hey, we're going to do surrogacy. So I would say it was supportive, but between family and even just random acquaintances, there was a lot of questions that I don't think were intended to be hurtful, but ended up hurting feelings. And a lot of people questioned, well, is he even going to think that you're his mother? And in my heart, I'm like, absolutely, I'm this child's mother. But there was so much doubt from everyone else about, you know, is this child even going to bond with you that it made me doubt it even more. And I think the comments and questions are probably meant harmlessly. People are curious. Surrogacy is not something very common at all. But yeah, we fielded a lot of weird, random questions. And then some went so far as to even question whether the child would be okay at all. Since they thought the baby would biologically be 50% her husband Jason's and 50% Deanna's, his sister. There was no genetic tie to her. It wasn't her egg, of course. And that was a concept a lot of people think surrogacy. They think, oh, it's the woman's egg. And they're like, how does that work if it's your husband's sperm? That child's not going to be okay. And it's like, no, that's not. I'm literally just renting her (laughs) uterus for 10 months, you know. (laughs) Everybody kind of just had their own opinions. And when it comes to something like that, 
I don't know why people felt so free to express them to us. And then, of course, there was Jennifer's mom who had her own concerns um, with Jennifer having her sister-in-law be a surrogate and possibly with surrogacy at all. And she would kind of let her concerns be known by doing things like sending Jennifer articles. And then, I mean, plus my mother's heart, I love her dearly, but she would send me links to these studies showing that surrogate babies were more prone to having blah, blah, blah problems. And I'm like, you are not helping. <laughs> like, this is not, this is not helpful to me right now. And I know it was just her way of expressing that she was worried and she was hopeful for a good outcome. And then like, I would send her like updated ultrasound pictures and she'd come back with these random things. I'm like, mother, you aren't helping. <laughs> Both of my parents are in their like mid to late fifties and surrogacy is not something that was widely accepted like when they were childbearing age. So I think it was just a lot of it was a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. Like literally my sister-in-law was just a vessel carrying the baby. Luckily, Deanna's husband added humor along the way. My brother-in-law, love him also dearly, but if someone would comment about Deanna being pregnant, he's like, oh yeah, but I'm not the father. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And just Just to get a reaction. Or he would say, oh no, it's her brother's baby. Just to get a reaction. I'm like, this is not helpful at all. (laughs) (laughs) But despite all the fears and the comments and the links from Jennifer's mom, the baby came out. And since Deanna was 40, she was considered geriatric, which actually worked out for them because it meant they were able to schedule an induction. It made it easier for all of them, Jennifer and Jason and Deanna's husband, to make sure they were free and available to all be at the birth together. Jason had his own strategy for being in the delivery room while his sister delivered his baby. I remember my husband was like, I'm staying at the head of the bed. He's like, as much as I want to watch this, I don't want to see my sister's vagina. So he stayed at the head of the bed. Um, And then I actually got to cut the cord. I got to cut the cord. Um, We did skin to skin right after. I had a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety about bonding. But it ended up not being a problem at all. As soon as he was born, it's like that all just faded away. That is amazing. You really have done everything to have a family that you now have, which is so amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It's been a long journey, um, but literally like the moment my son was born, it healed my heart completely from every single thing that we'd been through, all of our different letdowns, you know, our our adoption failure, everything. It just all vanished the moment my son was born. I knew in my heart ever since I was a little kid that I was gonna be a mother somehow. And it just so happened that my body couldn't do it, but I have amazing people in my life that made it happen. So yeah, she's just, she. I, when I say she's amazing, I literally, we are so incredibly lucky to have someone like her in our life because she gave us a gift, like so selflessly. I, yeah, I wouldn't have my kiddos if it wasn't for her, so. Jennifer and Jason's son is born. And now the hardest part of the surrogacy journey for Deanna was about to begin. Uh, with 
our son, we used donor breast milk until my sister-in-laws came in and then she would pump and give it to us. Wow. Yeah. She said that was the most taxing part of the whole entire pregnancy, labor, everything was pumping. She pumped for three months. I mean, waking up all through the night to pump. And she gave, we had enough milk where my son had breast milk um, up until he was six months old. And then we switched to formula because it was just getting too taxing for her, which we fully understood. Jennifer and Jason named their son Bryce. About four months after Deanna gave birth to Bryce, she was diagnosed with MS. And when Bryce was two years old, Deanna asked Jennifer and Jason, do you want to do this again? They did. They still had two embryos stored. Deanna actually went off her MS medications to carry a second child for her brother and Jennifer. And she actually did extremely well during pregnancy with all of her symptoms because pregnancy tends to suppress MS symptoms. The second time around, they had a baby girl. So when our daughter was born, we told her, don't worry about pumping because like that was, they, they kind of felt like the exhaustion from pumping kind of led into this huge MS flare that she had. And we knew it was important for her to get back on her medication. So it was like, we will go straight to formula. You are totally fine. <laughs> like, please don't put yourself through that again. So, and she was more than happy to not pump after the second one. <laughs> Jennifer's kids are now seven and four. And they have told them that they didn't come out of mommy's tummy because she can't have babies in hers. We were just actually talking to them both last night about coming out of Aunt Dee's tummy and how amazing and how loved and how wanted they were. Because, you know, families today look so different. There's so many different variations of what a family can be. And they fully know now, like, we tried so hard to have them and we just couldn't. So Aunt Dee helped and it's been an amazing thing. But when Bryce was three, he did have one question about Jennifer getting him after he grew in Aunt Dee's tummy. The only challenging part was when my stepsister was pregnant. Bryce was three and he wanted to know if Courtney was going to give us her baby too. Because that's just what the sisters do (laughs) is give mommy their babies. I'm like, no, no, no. Not every baby. What is it to someone um, who's going through a similar experience? Like someone who's just, I want nothing more than to have a family and I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying. The first thing is you can't, it's so hard to, to actually not do this, but you can't put so much pressure on yourself. I think looking back, I spent years wasting so much energy, hating my body, hating myself because I couldn't do this. And you can't really help it when you're going through it to feel like that. But that's definitely one piece of advice would be just give yourself some grace. And also keep your eye focused on the prize. Like you will get there in one way or another. If you're determined to have kids, you'll get to have kids somehow. It just may look different. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I need your help to help this show get in front of more mama listeners who might benefit from these stories. Please follow, rate, and review the podcast. Go to mamaihearyou.com on whatever device you use to listen to your podcasts and click on the button that says rate this show. That's M-A-M-A-I-H-E-A-R 
Y-O-U.com. Also at MamaIHearYou.com, there is one of my favorite things. You can record your answer to the fun question of the month, such as, where do all the missing socks go? The answers will be pieced together in upcoming episodes with some of the best answers shared on Mama I Hear You's Instagram page and in the Facebook group. And finally, I would love to hear from you. At the website, you can leave me an audio message about the show or just motherhood in general, as well as fill out a short form if you'd like to share your own motherhood story on the show. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to connecting with you.